This program is sponsored by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students and faculty aren't just ready for change at the Scripps College, they're hungry for it. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Kimberly Barlig and Julie Francis from the Patton College of Education at Ohio University. They're also joined by the dean of that college, Dr. Renee Middleton. They're going to tell us about a pioneer in reading education, Helen Mansfield Robinson, who during the 1960s was one of the primary authors for the Dick and Jane series. Dean Renee Middleton is the dean at the Patton College of Education. She also, as a young reader, learned to read through the Dick and Jane series and as a, an African-American woman was heartened by the fact that there was diversity in the 1960s as an African-American family was added to the Dick and Jane series. She tells us what that series means to her. My name is Renee Middleton, and I am dean of the Gladys W. and David H. Patton College of Education. And I am delighted to share my memory of the Helen N. Robinson reading series. I learned to read from the Dick and Jane books. I can remember being in Boston, Massachusetts, sitting at the kitchen table with my book. And I remember reading, see Dick run, run Dick run, see spot, spot, see spot run. And the repetition of the words and the characters and... I think it shouldn't be lost on individuals. One of the things that I remember is when they introduced the first African-American family into the community through the Dick and Jane series. And I was delighted to see that and see them integrate um, individuals of color into her reading books. And that certainly um, had a positive effect on me. Helen M. Robinson, I really believe, was ahead of her time and really thought um, certainly about the importance of uh, integrating uh, individuals from different cultural backgrounds into her reading series. And that's something I distinctly remember, and it meant a lot to me. Helen Mansfield Robinson, if you look at all of her credentials, it says reading education pioneer, researcher, author, superintendent of schools, psychologist and publisher. <laughs> she, she had quite a career. Uh, I understand she was born in Athens, Ohio, a college town, uh, in 1906, but got her degree at a very young age in 1926. So she got the degree at either 20 or 21, depending on uh, how her birthday settled out. Uh, She was sort of a pioneer at the time, wasn't she? She absolutely was. I I think she was very progressive in uh, the work that she did. Um, Helen Mansfield is from Athens. The Mansfield family had a very uh, large plot along the Hawking River. It was established 
uh, before the university was established in 1804. So the Mansfield family have been and are still in our area. Uh, Helen, when she started school, was an accelerated learner, and that's why she finished high school at a younger age. She um, went to John Hancock High School here in Athens. I think at the time it was in Ellis College, perhaps, or the Ellis Hall. Ellis Hall. Yeah. Um, So she she was very much a a, a gifted student and went on to graduate from Ohio University in 1926 and continued to be a a very distinguished um, and prolific writer and researcher in the field of reading education for sixty years. 60 years. Yeah, six decades. She, yes. she she was at it and and did so many things. I mean from being a teacher to being a school superintendent to being a specialist in the art of reading and what it meant to to be a psychologist and know what that means psychologically to a person. She had so many facets mm-hmm. to her. But it's interesting that they didn't all come out at once. I mean, it it's not unusual, but it took her 18 years between the time she graduated from Ohio University to the time that she got her Ph.D. at the University of Chicago in the middle of World War II. Uh, this, this is a, a, a woman that uh, – had tenacity, <laughs> mm-hmm. but but she wasn't idle for that eighteen years. I don't mean to say that she was picking up experiences based on her undergraduate degree that then helped her later on. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the um, ideas of when she was at the University of Chicago and she began to do some work in what was the center for reading at the University of Chicago. I think that that certainly influenced her work in the field of reading and thinking about, I mean, her thesis work was on an investigation into the causes of severe reading retardation, which was later then uh, titled Why Pupils Fail in Reading. So all of her experience that I think came together at that point, she had this idea of investigating what it was that sort of uh, delayed students in gaining that accelerated and proficient work in uh, in in reading and writing. And it was that work that she was doing as um, a a professor at the University of Chicago working with uh, William Gray, I think that had an influence on her later work and more focused work on reading education. And you mentioned before that she was a pioneer. I very much think that she was because of all of the extended research and writings that she did the second part of her career at the University of Chicago. She certainly was... um an academic's academic mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense that I think everything from what I understand and what I've been able to read about her, everything that she did was based on sound theory <laughs> and based on academic research. 
Most definitely. And I think that you see that in all of the accolades when you read her bio. She was involved in many of professional organizations. She was definitely um, an officer in many of those uh, organizations. So she was thinking about how she could disseminate her work to the field of reading through her work at University of Chicago and throughout the nation. I want to change focus a little bit and talk about the Dick and Jane series of of books that taught reading to so many of us uh, throughout uh, our our younger years, and we'll we'll circle back and get to Helen's involvement with that in, in a bit. But this this was a a group of of books all published by the uh, same publishing company. But clear back, it started in the 1930s and went up through the 1970s. Now, that's 40 years. That's four decades of Dick and Jane. Uh, you'd think that, uh, uh, that that probably uh, couldn't be, but it really lasted that long. Yes, the reading series was used in four-fifths of the nation's schools and was read by 85 million American children from 1930 to 1965. 85 million American children. So it was, I mean, we, we hear sometimes about the McGuffey Reader <laughs> and all of this. Well, this was sort of the 1930s version of it, it but it, it – just to remind people, if, you, if you've forgotten, it was Dick and Jane, brother and sister, mother and father, uh, Spot the dog, Puff the cat, uh, Sally the baby, sometimes went by baby, sometimes yeah. went, went by Sally. And, you know, it was the, the see spot run, uh, <laughs> see Sally sit, see, see Jack jump. It, it was simplistic, but it was everybody's, as you said, four-fifths, that's 80%, that, that's everybody's starting point. And I'm, I bet you every one of our listeners out there has a Dick and Jane story or had a Dick and Jane book. Now, if you have an original Dick and Jane book that's in any kind of good condition, it's worth about 300 bucks now. <laughs> on the on the antique market, they are prized now. Not the reproductions. I'm talking about the first editions, Dick and Jane, back in the 30s. Uh, those those are highly highly valued. Now, why did this last so long? You know, you're an educator, Julie. Why why, why did this last so long? What was, what was its appeal? Its simplicity? I think that there is simplicity, of course, in the stories. From a, a reading educator's perspective, they were designed so that uh, it was a style that emphasized a look-say or a whole-word method of reading. So when you see the repetitiveness of some of the words, some of the words like see, dick, run, see, 
dick, run, run. That whole run, idea. Run, run, dick. Yes. <laughs> you see that repetition of those same words over and over. And sometimes the new words weren't even introduced until the third or fourth page of those little readers. So that the young child that was learning to read can see those words over and over. And then a new word sort of come in near the middle to the end of the text. The pictures, which are very delightful and represent that period of time with which they were written, um, have the action portrayed in the illustration so that children reading the books could predict and anticipate through reading the pictures what some of those very, very simple sentence structures and use of repetitive words would be saying. You saw a picture of Dick running. (laughs) That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. There were, by the way, uh, different artists for different time periods. Started off with Eleanor Campbell and Keith Ward, and then a guy by the name of Robert Childress came along in the 50s. Uh, Richard Wiley came on in the 60s. Now, the interesting part of, of that transition is they all copied the original. If you look at the ones in the 1960s, they aren't far different stylized, uh, style-wise than those in the, in the 1930s. A little cleaner lines, uh, but, but basically the same. Now, uh, Richard Wiley has an added distinction – uh, from an art art perspective, correct? Yes, uh, Wiley uh, introduced an African American family in the book series in the early 1960s, and he did that. And then they had to adapt some of the copy to incorporate that family into the schools, and it was a fully integrated family, as I, as I have read about it. Is that correct? I believe so. Uh, The whole idea was in the 1960s, when we were talking about civil rights movement, the publishers started to recognize that the books that the children were were reading needed to reflect what was going on and important to reflect what was going on in the history of the mid-50s and the 1960s. And this was an important transition because this is when Helen Mansfield Robinson became the first author in the 60s, and she was working with Richard Riley to uh, design these books with Scott Forsman Publishers. And she did that uh, to incorporate this African-American family, another pioneer move on, Mm -hmm. on, on, on her part. But she came – she she wrote primarily 62 to 65. That's correct. As I understand. But the books were used up into the 70s. That's right. Uh, she came with two changes. One, the African-American family. And two, she introduced – now, Julie, you can help me with this. She introduced a new reading technique. It was not just sight reading memorization of words, she incorporated a phonics element? How did, how did she do that? Yes, she incorporated a bit more that had to do with phonological awareness, which is being able to hear and see sounds and then linked up to phonics, which is so, sort of a letter sound association. Many times we talk about it as being able to sound out a word. So she was thinking about different levels or different ways of reading text that not only had to do with reading those sight words as whole 
whole words, look, say, but also thinking about what it would be if they came to a word that they didn't know that they would be able to apply a letter sound association to solve or figure out or read that word. And again, we need to think about that dynamic, too, of the support that those illustrations gave. So we were thinking about different levels of knowledge when they're reading those texts. So she really came to the Dick and Jane series uh, with a wealth of educational experience at that point. She had already had her uh, Ph.D. for a couple of decades, and and she came with uh, an idea of changing things, shaking things up a little bit while keeping the, the traditional stories. That's right. I think we need to go back to when we were talking about her influence when we think about the complexity with which she wrote about reading education. I mean, she she wrote many, many articles, and I should say that she donated all of the, her books and articles to the Alden Library in 1987. So we have her complete collection at Ohio University, and it spans through the psychology of learning the psychology of reading, phonics instruction, reading at the kindergarten level, when we're talking about readiness. We have an entire collection of hundreds of articles that span, well, let's take a look. Children's books lists, language experience approach, (laughs) rapid reading, So it was all of these things as well as reading disabilities that she was able to write to that definitely influenced how she was composing the text in the Dick and Jane series in the 60s. The Dick and Jane series, uh, the other thing that that amazed me um, is how incorporated in our pop culture it has become. I know in 2003, the Gresset and Dunlap group of uh, subsidiary Penguin Group uh, publishers reissued <laughs> and, and, and reissued, I think, 2.5 million. That's no shabby uh, press run uh, of the book, but said, don't, don't learn to read by this. <laughs> we, we, we've sort of passed that. Uh, but they issued it just because we all – uh, the older uh, people uh, had learned to read by it, and it was part of our life. But it's been part of movies. It's been part of uh, songs. It's it's just been incorporated in a lot of things. Yeah, and at that time, they also created mugs, refrigerator magnets, T-shirts, bags, all with the iconic imagery and catchphrases like "See Spot Run." Yeah, spot was always running. That was the that was the, the the traditional. When she did this in the '60s, even though she changed it, it still was unpopular. I I read in some of your materials the quote from Dr. Seuss, uh, <laughs> basically saying. I am so glad I have written my books because it's going to rid the shelves of Dick and Jane. <laughs> now, I think uh, that's probably a bit of an overstatement, but by some people, they weren't liked too much, were they? Well, I think that when we look critically at how we're instructing children to read, 
there seemed to be a one dimension to some of the Dick and Jane books. This whole idea that children need to memorize or just look at the words and know what they are to retell the stories. So I think that there was a challenge in the point of when we look historically at um, basils or any uh, books that were used in instruction what are, what are for basils? children. Basils are uh, little stories, very much like Dick and Jane books. Uh, they're often written for a particular age level and grade level so that they are developmentally appropriate for that age so that it will support children's reading at that particular uh, grade level. So I think that there's been this sort of evolution with the whole idea of that this may not have been appropriate and let's think more critically about how children learn to read and what is going to support that at that particular stage. Also, Tom, I mean, how fondly do you look back at the textbooks that you were made to read in school? Not many. <laughs> I've got a whole shelf of law books that I haven't looked at in 40 years <laughs> that I had in law school. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change. They're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I think everybody probably started with the, of my generation started with these, and, and then you picked up something else that you liked, whether it was Nancy Drew or the Bobsy Twins. Or, uh, it, but this was the start, and then you, you moved forward to something. And all of those combined uh, were sort of the beginning of your literary experience. Yeah, that's right. I think because the, you you do have a fondness for these characters. You want to read about their activities. You want to read about their friendships. You want to read about what's happening in their family. Um, there are, I think, universal themes in them that have to do with family and love and friendship and childhood and joy. So I think that those are the nostalgic pieces that draw us back to the Dick and Jane stories. They, they were certainly wholesome. Yes, they were. Uh, they, they were certainly wholesome. Uh, so much so that I remember as a uh, – now, not a, a starting child, but probably about six, seven years old, I started thinking Dick was a bit of a dweeb <laughs> because he just was so perfect and, and so good, and I wasn't. <laughs> and so I could never aspire to be Dick and Dick and Jane. <laughs> <laughs> and the other the other stereotype that uh, that you had to look at was uh, mom and dad. Uh, mom, as we were, were chatty 
played uh, uh, yesterday uh, sort of is June Cleaverish, <laughs> and Dad certainly is sort of the all-American dad that none of us had. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Goes to the office and comes home and then mows yeah. his lawn on the weekend. And plays with the dog and <laughs> yes. the kids. Yes. While the uh, mother vacuums the carpet. <laughs> that's, that's right. She not only, going back to Helen, though, she not only uh, sort of changed, well, she did change, not sort of. She changed the Dick and Jane books in the 1960s. But then she wrote a lot of books contemporaneously with this to direct educators, did she not? She certainly did, and she wrote them for all age levels. I mean, when you think about what she was doing during this series, she was writing companion texts, teacher manuals, so that she would be able to uh, address things like what is the particular plot in this story? What are the words you want to focus on? What sorts of activities could you do to reinforce a development of uh, phonological awareness or that whole idea of letter and sound? Um, what are some writing activities that you could do? So she was writing those companion texts, and she was writing the little student workbooks as well, so that the students would have little activity pages to go along with the stories. And it could be something as simple as find all of the words that start with M, or finish the sentence with what uh, Dick did in the story. So she was thinking about uh, a, a whole uh, group of um, supplemental materials that went along with the little readers. Her emphasis on phonics is is interesting because my wife was taught phonics. I was not. I was taught total sight reading, reading and we came from different parts of Ohio. I am a terrible speller. <laughs> I, I am a great dictionary user still to this day. But I'm a terrible speller. She's a great speller, and she attributes it back to her knowledge of phonics. Mm -hmm. I think it's the genius of Helen Mansfield Robinson through the study, the research, the writing, the work that she did to think about integrating all of those aspects of reading into this series for each grade level. You talked about the more contemporary texts that she wrote. She was thinking about that older reader and writer and what would be of interest level for them, what would be content that they were interested in, not just little realistic stories, fiction stories, but also stories that would be about science. There's a lovely little book that she wrote about rocks that I love that that intermediate or that middle school reader would pick up and still be able to build upon their reading capacity, but also be learning a great deal about science at the same time. At Ohio University at the Patton College of Education, there is a new award uh, in Helen Manfield Robinson's name. What kind of award is it? It's called the Helen M. Robinson Distinguished Literacy Advocate Award, and this is the first time we will be awarding that at a dedication ceremony we're having on November 30th. 
the recipient will be former First Lady Mrs. Mc, uh, Deborah McDavis, and uh, she's being recognized for a lifetime of dedication to literacy, uh, for serving on the advisory board for the Literacy Center, and for contributing to a lot of the literacy programs that uh, began out of the center. Well, I want to thank both of you, but before we go, is there anything I'm missing on Helen Mansfield-Robinson? It's important to note that she was cited as an outstanding scholar in the disciplines of reading, the psychology of reading, and teacher education in reading, and for being one of America's most prolific and prominent contributors to the literature of her profession. Um, In addition to that, uh, being an Ohio University alumna, she also received an honorary doctorate degree uh, from Ohio University in 1976, and she received Ohio University's Alumni Association Certificate of Merit, which is the association's highest honor. I want to thank both of you for talking with me today. Uh, Kimberly Barlig, for Director of Communication at the Patton College at Ohio University, and Julie Francis, the director of the Edward Stevens Literacy Center. Thank you both for for chatting with me about Helen Mansfield-Robinson and letting us take a trip down memory, memory lane with <laughs> Dick and Jane and Spot. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Today we've been talking to Kimberly Barlig, and Julie Francis from the Patton College of Education at Ohio University. They also were joined by the dean of that college, Dr. Renee Middleton. They told us about a pioneer in reading education, Dr. Helen Mansfield Robinson. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. You can subscribe to Spectrum. It's free. You can do it at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at your NPR One app. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or suggestions for topics you would like to hear more about, please direct them to me by email. That's at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.